0: You've probably never heard the term Operation London Bridge, but it's reportedly the code name given to the plan that's in place for the days and weeks after Queen Elizabeth II passes. Hers is, I'm quoting, the longest reign of any monarch in British history. She doesn't beat the King of Thailand, but uh, she's been Queen for over 50 years. Her Majesty has been called the cornerstone to the Commonwealth. The patron to almost 600 organizations and charities and plays a pivotal role in the UK's alliance with many countries. Her passing will bring about a lot of change, not just for the United Kingdom, but potentially the world. On the same day as her death, Charles will immediately become king. The day after the Queen's death, on a live stream, Charles will make his first official speech as king. The government will swear allegiance to the sound of a 41-gun salute in Hyde Park, London, And King Charles, if that's the name he so chooses, then will begin to visit the capital cities of the United Kingdom, uh, Edinburgh, Belfast, and Cardiff, before returning to London. Likely within a year of Her Majesty's funeral, which will be a massive undertaking, and all the media uh, people are ready, documentaries are ready, clothing is ready, they're prepared for this announcement. Within a year of her funeral, an official coronation for King Charles will take place. New British currency will be printed, with the king's portrait, and the queen's currency will slowly be removed from circulation. The national anthem will also be changed to God Save the King. This scenario will one day be upon us. One reporter writes, Operation London Bridge will be triggered, and arguably, the biggest funeral of our lifetime will be witnessed around the world. The comings and goings of earthly monarchs are no small event, and they trigger extensive events as a result. Yet, Globally, as globally and historically significant as this will be, these events will pale in comparison to the events triggered by the birth of King Jesus. And judging by what Her Majesty professes to believe, I'm sure she won't be troubled at that being said. Ever since the arrival of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Bethlehem, we have been witnessing and responding to the ripple effect of his birth effects which continue to reverberate until this day and until the day they crescendo at the second coming of Christ. Jesus, our Savior, is not only a prophet who reveals God to us as we learned. He's not only a priest who brings us to God by uh, the sacrifice of himself, as we've learned in our series. He is also a king. Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellham write, we need more than a prophet and a priest we need also a king. As our king, Jesus addresses the human problem of our need for a righteous ruler, an obedient servant king, end quotation. And this is a problem that we cannot help but identify as witnessed in the political fervor that comes around every election cycle, every outrage that splashes media headlines at the yet another failure of human leadership, and then every disappointment that we feel when yet another human proves themselves incapable of leading us in the ways that we so desperately long for and need. The Gospel writer Matthew wishes us to know that in Jesus Christ we have solution to our need, which he demonstrates by showing us the immediate ripple effects of Jesus' birth. In the events that the birth of Jesus triggers, which continue to this very day, We have overwhelming evidence that Jesus is king, that he is king of kings, and that he is Lord of lords, a king worthy of our worship, of our allegiance, of our lives, of all that we are and all that we have. And The ripple effect of Jesus' birth proves to us that he is king of kings and Lord of lords, and Matthew gives us six clues that this is so. And my hope and my prayer is that piecing these together will cause joy and worship and tremendous confidence to well up within us as a church. And at the same time, we'll call anyone who is not a Christian to bow in submission and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me then to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the first 12 verses. It's kind of the song that we just sung about Matthew chapter 2. If you would turn there to the first of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's the first New Testament book that we have. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. But before that, let's pray and ask for God's help. So turn there to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read out as soon as we pray. Father, your word tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, for any of us who do, we thank you for that evident work of the Spirit of God within us to open our eyes to see your glory in his face. We know, Lord, that it's possible for us to understand the words that we read before us in our copy of the Bible. We know that it's possible for us to even trace the lines of thought and argument and reason. But, Lord, we know it is impossible for us to appreciate and accept and believe in the spiritual significance of them apart from a work of your Spirit. And so we ask again as we open up your word and read it together and as it's preached that you would grant us an even greater measure of your spirit. We know you're a good father who loves to give good gifts to your children and you invite us to ask for this one. And so we ask, Lord, that for the sake of the church and for Christ whom you love, that you would give us understanding according to your spirit of your word. And this we ask together in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Matthew 2, then, 1 to 12, reads as follows. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This, again, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In establishing the kingship of Jesus, which is a, a special consideration of the gospel writer Matthew, It's interesting that very little time and attention is actually spent on the birth of Jesus itself. We're given a lengthy and significant lead up in Matthew 1 that Pastor Caleb preached a few weeks ago. And there we saw that Jesus is descended from royal lineage. He's the son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham as he's tied back to that ancestor. And these details come to us in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, in Scripture, the only other time we read about a book of genealogy is in Genesis 5, which is with respect to Adam's descendants. And so, Matthew is saying to us, not only can you trace Jesus' lineage back to uh, David or Abraham, but Jesus is the last Adam who is promised, and he has come. In Matthew 1, we also read about the miraculous conceiving in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We also learn the name of the child, do we not? In Matthew one twenty one: you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But of the actual birth itself, we're given one sentence. Joseph did as the angel commanded him, Matthew one twenty five: He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1, and we fast forward and we read, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And despite what many nativity displays show, there are no wise men at the stable. A period of time has passed. Joseph has secured a house in Bethlehem for his wife and the newborn king to stay. And little do they know, while Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day, and as Mary recovers from giving birth, events are unfolding that at this point are beyond their knowledge. In Matthew 2, 1-2, we are given the first clue that the ripple effect of Jesus' birth proves to us he is king of kings and lord of lords. Here's clue number one. Nations are drawn to worship King Jesus. Isn't that what we observe in these strange, unknown magi traveling who knows how far before the days of Ubers and airplanes to worship a baby king? These are Gentiles, likely from Babylon They are being drawn as people from the nations to worship a small child which should clue us in that the one that they've come to worship is king of kings and lord of lords. Behold, Matthew says, look, see these men coming from the east to worship the one born king of the Jews. Now some of you will know that there is some biblical significance to this compass direction that these men come from. When Adam and Eve are put out of the Garden of Eden, as it tells us in Genesis 3.24, because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it tells us that he drove out the man, God did, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve sinned. There's a movement eastward. In Genesis 4, we read about the first murder. And there we learn that as Cain has killed his brother, it tells us that he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's a further eastward movement. And then when we move over to Genesis chapter 11, and we read about the Tower of Babel incident, we see there that they also migrated east. They moved farther from the presence of the Lord. It's never a good sign when we read in Scripture that people move in an eastward direction. And what's significant here, though, is that we have a group of Gentiles not moving eastward, they're moving westward. To add some more significance to this, and what makes it all the more fascinating, is that when God gave instructions to Moses to set up the tabernacle, the entrance was on the east side. So entering into the tent of meeting from the east side and moving in meant you would be moving in a westward direction to worship Yahweh and the closer the farther west you went the closer you would come to the holy of holies which is where God's presence dwelt upon the earth in the midst of his covenant people and here in Matthew Observe a group of Gentile astronomers and astrologers traveling westward from the east to worship the king who reveals God to us as prophet and brings us again into the presence of God as priest. And to add one more layer, do you know what tribe Jesus was descended from? Judah, right? Do you know where the tribe of Judah was to camp around the tent of meeting when God in the pillar of clouds stayed put and they were to stay in that place for a period of time until it moved again and led them in a different place. Judah, though not the firstborn, is mentioned first, and Judah is camped right at the entrance on the east side to the tent of meeting. Jesus, descended from Judah, is the way back to the presence of God, which God always intended to reopen to us in the sending of his Son. And what was it that Jacob prophesied about Judah before he died in Genesis 49, verse 10? This is what he said. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To this prophet, priest, king, the wise men had been drawn to fall down before and worship. That's why they have come. Matthew 2 2. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, what this star was exactly, we can only speculate. Some people believe it was the convergence of Saturn and Jupiter in the night sky, which tomorrow, you may have heard, will be observable by us and will come closer than it has in 800 years. So go outside tomorrow night and look west, I believe. And you'll see, from our vantage point in the solar system, Saturn and Jupiter will appear only a tenth of a degree different, uh, separate from one another. Now, was there a strange convergence in the sky that this guild of astronomers and astrologers observed? Perhaps. Although the behavior of the guiding star in Matthew 2.9 suggests otherwise. Because it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. It seems to have led them west towards Jerusalem, where they then asked to run for more information. After meeting with Herod, the star appears again. It's said to move and then to stop, which doesn't sound like the behavior of stars in the night sky that we are used to. Sounds like there's some more supernatural phenomenon going on here. What we can say is this. Just as the light of the glory of God in the tabernacle led God's covenant people through the wilderness to the promised land, A heavenly light has led this band of Gentiles to God's anointed king, the promised one, who would lead us back into the presence of God. For these magi, the heavens, declared the glory of God by leading them straight to the one born king of the Jews, not one who would become king of the Jews, but one who was born a child and yet a king, as the song goes. And this supernatural phenomenon of Western Westward traveling Gentiles from the east, we witness God's intention for all to recognize the rule and reign of his anointed king. And to this very day, as we remembered a few short weeks ago, men and women around the world continue to bow the knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. As one fourth century songwriter put it, "O you heights of heaven adore him, Angel hosts, his praises ring. Powers, dominions bow before him and extol our God and King. Let no tongue on earth be silent. Every voice in concert ring evermore and evermore. This ripple effect of Jesus' birth has not ceased, but has continued and will continue until either in glad submission or unavoidable subjection, all will recognize the reign of King Jesus. To this, God's word has always pointed, which brings us to the second clue from Matthew that the ripple effect of Jesus' birth proves he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Scripture is fulfilled in the birth of King Jesus. That's clue number two. Scripture is fulfilled in the birth of King Jesus. What was long ago predicted has now come to pass. The birth of this newborn king in Bethlehem is just one of the many prophetic boxes that Jesus successfully checks. And we learn about this from the discovery of the chief priests and the Bible experts in uh, verse 4 and 5, because they are sent digging by Herod, a troubled Herod, which causes a stir in the entire city. And the reason for Jerusalem becoming disturbed along with Herod is because Herod himself was disturbed. Someone has said, when Herod the Great trembled, the whole city shook. And this is because of the kind of king that Herod was. And we'll come back to that in a few moments in Matthew's third clue. But for now, stick with the Old Testament quotation that Matthew cites from Micah 5.2, which isn't the first or last he gives us in his gospel. He's already wanted his readers to know that Jesus fulfills prophecy. In Matthew 1.22 and 23, he writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and their son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew 2, 5 and 6, he's pointing out another fulfillment. The, the prophet told us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And this is where Jesus was born. Later in Matthew two fifteen, he writes, This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. In 2.17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In 3.3, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. In Matthew 4, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And Matthew uses the same fulfillment language in chapters 8, 12, 13, 21, and 27. If you add all of those together, that's 10 prophetic fulfillments explicitly stated by Matthew. And there are literally hundreds more in the prophetic writings that all have their loose ends tied up in the person of Jesus. And that prompts the question, is this just coincidence? Not a chance, comes the response of Louis Lapidese, a Christian convert from Jerusalem. The odds are so astronomical, he says, that they rule that out. Someone has done the math and estimated that the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled is one chance in 100 million billion, which is more of millions of times greater than the total number of people who have ever walked planet Earth. The same person has calculated that if you were to take a toonie and put a mark on it and then cover the province of, of Ontario in tunis up to your shins, you just imagine that, it's a lot of tunis. If you were to do that with one marked toonie and you sent a person out blindfolded and gave them one shot to find the marked tuning. That would be equivalent to the coincidence or chance that it would be for Jesus to fulfill just eight prophecies. The same person has, another mathematician has calculated that if you take all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it would be one chance in one, I'm going to have to use my fingers, one billion, trillion, 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 trillion. Our minds cannot comprehend a number that size. And yet Jesus Christ in his birth and all of the other prophetic fulfillments demonstrates to us that he indeed is king of kings and lord of lords. He checks all of the boxes. And that is a fact that must be contended with. For the Christian, this enlarges our confidence and the trustworthiness of God's word. Does it not, brothers and sisters? Even though there may be hundreds or thousands of years between prophecy and fulfillment, when God speaks, he is true to his word, and whatever he says is as good as done. At the same time, brothers and sisters, King Jesus fulfillment of these prophecies also enlarges our confidence in the ruler that has been given to us. One Micah said who would shepherd his people Israel, which in the new covenant now consists of both Jew and Gentiles who have been grafted in. We have a shepherd king who leads us, who nourishes us, who protects us. And oh, how our need of one is magnified in these days. And what, brothers and sisters, would we do without the shepherd king? If you're taking all of this in and you're not a Christian, but you're seriously investigating the claims of Christianity, maybe even closing in on the point of trusting in Christ, is this not compelling evidence to tip the scales in favor of repenting and trusting in Christ and being baptized to publicly acknowledge that he indeed is Savior and Lord of your life. Friend, there is every reason to trust in God's word and trust in God's King who offers to lead you and nourish you and protect you and bring you safely into the presence of God where you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're not a Christian, why would you not come to faith in Christ right where you are? At this very moment, He is ready to receive you. Trust in Him. He is the fulfillment of God's trustworthy Word. And to those who are maybe not so open, let me say that there are two responses that you should beware in listening to this. The first response is that of indifference. You pay careful attention to the religious CEOs and the Bible PhDs that Matthew writes about here. They know exactly where God's promised king would be born. And there's no indication in this passage of scripture that they didn't believe what God's word said. But what did they do about the fact that Gentiles showed up and said, we've come to worship him who was born king of the Jews? What did they do about this information? Nothing. They did absolutely nothing. They were indifferent. Their response was an unholy shrug of the shoulders, ah, whatever. And herein lies a potential danger to those who have spent a lot of time around the Bible or in church or hearing about spiritual things. Boys and girls, young men and young women, you might have grown up here. You might have heard mom and dad talk to you about the Lord many times. You've been through Sunday school, junior high, senior high. You may know where to turn in the Bible to find answers to spiritual questions. But what difference has all of this made in your response to Jesus? Perhaps it's nothing. Like these religious experts, you've no interest in following the wise men to fall down and worship before this one who is king of kings and lord of lords. Friend, if that is you, you are in grave danger. Because indifference towards Jesus, as someone has said, is simply hatred that is concealed and rejection that is delayed. If you're not for Jesus, if you're not a worshiper of this one born king, you are against Jesus. There's no middle ground. And though you think you're not so terrible to sit quietly on the fence, your spiritual indifference and stubbornness places you actually on the same pathway as King Herod which is a comparison I hope will shock you and alarm you to respond rightly to Jesus, which brings us to the third clue, that the ripple effect of Jesus' birth proves that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Clue number three is this. Kings of earth conspire against King Jesus. The kings of the earth conspire against King Jesus. Let me just say here for a minute, I meant to mention earlier, kids... If you can tell me one of these six clues after the service, that toonie's got your name on it. Someone came and got the one in the first service, so I love it. It's great. Though Jesus is only an infant at this point, the first human king to hear about the birth of Jesus tries to get rid of him. We've already seen that Herod is deeply troubled by the appearance and inquiry of the Magi. And this is because someone writes he was an Edomite, not a Jew and he had been made king by the Romans. The news that the Magi were bringing sounded suspiciously like the emergence of a genuine descendant of the royal line of David as claimant to the throne. And if this was true, it means that Herod wasn't going to have one to sit on for much longer, was he? Like every unchecked, rebellious, sinful human, Herod wanted to be the king and ruler of his own universe and as many other people's universe as he could manage. His ambition was lofty. His accomplishments were indeed great, but his means of getting there were terrible. He was a wicked man. He had his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, the high priest, drowned. Sometime afterwards, he killed his own wife. He killed two of his sons, and he killed a third five days before his own death. Another evidence of his bloodthirstiness and insane cruelty was, I quote, having the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem and arrested and imprisoned shortly before his death. He knew that no one would mourn his death, so he gave orders that when he died, those prisoners would be, were to be executed so that there would be actual genuine mourning in Jerusalem upon his death. But that's not even the worst of what he did. He recalled these magi, these wise men, to a secret meeting, verses 7 and 8, under false pretenses. And he lied about his desire to go and worship this king. And we know he was lying because a few short verses later, Matthew tells us what happens when the wise men don't return. And what Herod does is in the spirit of Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, which tells us this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Matthew writes in Matthew two sixteen. 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. I currently have a little boy who will turn two in March. And I know that you haven't seen him in a little while, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. He's really cute. He's got big eyes. He's got a great laugh. When I get home at the end of the day and he hears the door, he comes barreling to the front door. Dada, dada, hug up. And when he's prompted, he'll say, love you, mama. Those are the ones that Herod vented his wrath upon because he wanted to get to God's anointed king. It is an unconscionable act of unspeakable evil that he would order babies ripped from their mother's arms against their father's protests and drive them through with swords to try and kill God's anointed king. What is this madness? It's nothing more and nothing less. And the cosmic conflict that began the day God spoke to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Herod, an agent of the prince of darkness, acting as though one of Satan's very children himself, takes up the devil's cause in the attempt to kill the newborn king, still believing the lie told to Adam and Eve, you shall be like God. And while we may not have committed infanticide in an effort to remain the captain of our own soul, the difference between our sinful rebellion and Herod's sinful rebellion is only one of degree, not of kind. In a moment, we'll explore how God responds to such efforts to thwart the reign of his anointed king. For now, is it, enough to, it is enough to see that the opposition to Jesus as a ripple effect of his birth, which continues to this day, actually demonstrates the truthfulness of his claim to be king of kings and lord of lords. Doesn't it ever strike you as odd that the most harassed people in human history are the Jewish people, God's covenant nation? Doesn't it ever strike you as significant that collectively the most persecuted people on the planet are Christians? 2,200 Nigerian Christians were hacked to death in 2020 alone. The Legitimacy of Christ's universal kingship is evidenced by the strength of opposition to his rule and his reign, especially by those who are drunk with power and position. If it wasn't real, why would the forces of darkness care? If it wasn't true, why would we rise up in rebellion to one that we don't want to have reign over us? And the reason that it's right to call this sinful madness is because of what it is that we are rejecting when we resist the rule and reign of Christ. It's a reign of love. It's one of joy and peace. And forgiveness, and mercy, and grace, and comfort, and rest, and having God as our Father, and the future hope of a new heavens and new earth devoid of evil, and sin, and sickness, and Satan, and death. When Jesus walked the earth and he cast out demons and he raised the dead and he healed the sick and he taught with the, the truth that he did with authority all of that was a window into what life is like living in the kingdom of God under the reign of Jesus And what is most remarkable of all is that though we have rejected and resisted he is still willing to grant us pardon By grace, through faith, as we trust His substitutionary death on the cross, confessing that He is Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved from the righteous wrath that He will unfold when He comes again. Accepting the universal lordship of this incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon coming King is how we experience His clemency. The story is told of the, the great admirable, admiral, Lord Nelson, who apparently had a reputation for treating uh, uh, defeated opponents with, uh, with, with kindness. And on one occasion, uh, one uh, defeated captain was brought onto Nelson's ship and he strode confidently across the quarter deck and he stuck out his hand to Admiral Nelson. And Admiral uh, Nelson, he didn't move a muscle. And he said to this captain, you first give me your sword, and then I will give you my hand. And so it is with Christ. We surrender ourselves to his righteous and glorious reign, and then he makes us his friends. It's a remarkable evidence of God's grace and kindness to us that this is what we should experience. And what does such a response towards King Jesus look like? Well, in stark contrast to the religious expert's indifference, which, by the way, would later match Herod's murderous rejection. We see it in the response of the traveling Gentiles from the east to worship King Jesus in Jerusalem. And here we have our fourth clue of the ripple effect of Jesus' birth proving to us that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Clue number four is this. Joy is multiplied at the prospect of King Jesus the thought of this one born king makes us and made the wise men almost deliriously happy. And boys and girls, you understand, you might be able to understand this better than anyone else in the room. And the reason for that is because ever since December 1st, maybe mom and dad got you an advent calendar and you get to open door number one on December 1st, and maybe there's a chocolate or a verse or something like that in there. And And then December 2, we do the same thing again. And I'm an advocate for annual Advent calendars so that every day we wake up with chocolate because who doesn't want to do that? But anyways, every day you've been opening up your Advent calendar. And every day Christmas gets closer. And every day your excitement gets bigger. And you just can't wait on Christmas Day to run downstairs and see if there's gifts under the tree and open them up and hope that you get what you ask for. And you, the feeling on Christmas Eve, you just you don't even feel like you can sleep, and you wake up at a silly time, like 5 o'clock in the morning, and you wake mom and dad up because you want to go downstairs and open your gifts, and ah, you're just so excited. And adults, maybe you can remember feeling like that when you were a kid, a feeling of anticipation of something that you hoped for and longed for and dreamed for, finally realized. Such were these men who traveled a great distance looking King Jesus. They made it all the way to Jerusalem, no doubt talking on the way of what would happen when they got there, and checking their packs to ensure the gifts that they had brought were secure, and no one had stolen them. They get to Jerusalem, and they ask around, where do we go next? They speak to the king. They they answer his summons. They put up with the secret state dinner, and now they then are directed to the city of Bethlehem. The star that they had followed appears again, And it finally, finally, after all this time, stops at their destination. And no wonder they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, as Matthew tells us, because there in the house is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they're going to get to see him with their own eyes. And they're going to get to fall on their faces before this one who is the object of their worship, and it fills them with so much anticipation that they are fit to burst. These men are the epitome of what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That is what the prospect of beholding the king who has come to save us does. He multiplies the joy of the nations who come to be glad in him. He is the thrill of hope that causes the weary world to rejoice. And it's so good for us to see this because brothers and sisters, some of us have traveled a long way and we might be wiped out from the twists and turns of living in a groaning creation. And groaning bodies get sick and get depression and mental illness and all sorts of other things. We're under the weight of the curse, but at the end of our journey, we get to see the king. Every dogged mile will be worth it. Every uncomfortable night will be worth it. Every tiring day will be worth it. Every sigh from the uphill struggle will be worth it. Every groundhog day of COVID, isolation, and lockdown will be worth it. Because at the end, we get to see the king. And because we are going to see the king, that prospect causes joy to well up within us. That's what he does for us, even now are you exhausted? You're going to see the king. Are you grieving? You're going to see the king. Are you sick and laid up? You are going to see the king. Are you beaten down by this world? You are going to see the king. Are you dog-tired from fighting tooth and nail against indwelling sin that too often seems to get the upper hand? You are going to see the king. Are you bruised from the sinful actions of others against you? You are going to see the king. The guiding star of the indwelling spirit will lead us to the father's house where his anointed king has prepared a place for us. And he will come back and get us. And we will be with him forever, living under his glorious and gracious reign in everlasting Sabbath rest. Our king has come to rescue us. He has shown us what life under his rule shall be like. He has died for us. He has risen for us. He has ascended to the right hand of God. And he will return for us. And so, brothers and sisters, meditate upon this until the exceeding joy of anticipation grips your heart. It might not plaster a cheesy grin on your face, but it will flood your soul with warmth and delight at the prospect of this joy-multiplying king. And inevitably, worship will follow. This is the fifth clue Matthew gives of the ripple effect of Jesus' birth, proving to us that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Clue number five is this. Worship is rightly offered to King Jesus. Look at verse 11. As they go into the house, Matthew tells us, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And brothers and sisters, I see that you are worshipping the Lord Jesus in this way in these days, judging by the $90,000 plus that is represented under this tree here. Worship was the wise man's intention all along. They came to worship. They told Herod they were looking for the king to worship. And when they come before this newborn king, they fall prostrate before this infant ruler. Matthew is crystal clear that worship is their fitting response to the one called Jesus. In Matthew 9:18, a ruler comes to kneel before Jesus. In Matthew 14:33, the disciples in the boat worship him saying, truly you are the son of God. In Matthew 15, 25, the Canaanite woman knelt before him. In John 20, 20, it's the mother of James and John. In 28, 9, it's the woman who see Jesus resurrected and they fall down and they grab a hold of his feet and they worship him. And then in 28, 17, when the risen Jesus goes to the mountain to meet with his disciples, they saw him and it says they worshiped him there. Homage is to be paid to this Jesus who is king of kings and Lord of lords from the moment of his birth, in the present, and unto eternity. Whatever the lengths, whatever the cost, this we do with unashamed acknowledgement before others that Jesus is our king, for he is worthy, Revelation 5.12, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And we pay this homage to him by humbling ourselves before him as the wise men do. We do this by opening our treasures to lavish King Jesus with costly gifts as befits his status. The Magi gave a gift of gold, the most precious of metals. As someone has said, it's a medal of kings. They give a gift of frankincense, which was used in temple worship in presenting this gift. Someone says the wise man pointed to Christ as our great high priest, And the same could be said of the myrrh, which was actually used for embalming. And on the surface, that might seem like a very offensive gift to present to the infant Christ, a spice for embalming, but the Old Testament tells us again and again the predictions of this one who would be born of his sufferings. James Montgomery Boyce writes that there is a sense in which by faith we too may present our gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. How so? With respect to myrrh, we offer to lay down our lives for the one who laid down his life for us. Not as a paying back, as though we could settle the debt, which would be impossible, but out of gratitude for the cross death that Jesus endured, hanging as he did with the sign of mockery, although accurate above his head, King of the Jews. Our king has died for us, and are we willing to live as though dead to the sin that he came to save us from? With respect to frankincense, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, do we not? Having been made new creatures by the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And This involves a life dedicated to good works that God prepared in advance for us to do as his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And finally, quoting Montgomery voice again, come with your gold. Gold symbolizes royalty. So when you come with your gold, you acknowledge the right of Christ to rule your life. You say, I'm your servant. You are my master. Direct my life and lead me in it so that I might grow up spiritually to honor and serve you accordingly. Brothers and sisters, in what way is the Lord Jesus, your King, calling you? to serve Him in these days. In the sixth clue, we have every confidence that no worship, that no service, that no giving to worship the Lord Jesus Christ will be in vain. And the reason for that is because the sixth clue that Matthew gives us, proving that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, is this. God will establish the reign of King Jesus. We see that in verse 12. No matter what attempts are made to depose the newborn king, God will protect his anointed. God will establish the reign of King Jesus. Verse 12 says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The wise men aren't able to see through Herod's deception. He's a very gifted man, very intelligent, a good orator. But before God, everything is laid bare. Every thought, every intention of the heart, nothing is beyond his sight. In the spirit of Psalm 2, as we saw, Herod responds to God's anointed king. According to Psalm 2, God responds to Herod's efforts to dispose of Jesus. This is what it says in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It is laughable to God that men would try to get rid of his anointed king. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And who is going to knock him off? No one. Herod the Great can't lay a finger on this helpless child, for God the Father will establish the reign of this one who is to be prophet, priest, and king. A dream sent from God redirects the Magi. An angel is dispatched to instruct Joseph to flee Herod's impending wrath by taking refuge in Egypt of all places until Herod dies. As Mary sings in Luke 2, Through Jesus, God will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and bring down the mighty from their thrones. And that includes, friends, scattering the proud thoughts of any listening to these words and bringing down any listening to these words who have set themselves on the throne of their lives rather than King Jesus. The Bible bursts with promises and assurances that the reign of his anointed king will be inaugurated. That means begun and consummated. That means completed. In Psalm 110, the Lord announces to David's Lord, who is Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. The apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15 he writes about the end. He says, then comes the end when he that is Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This Jesus, king at his birth, a king in his life, uniquely a king in his death, a king in his resurrection, enthroned As a king at his ascension and king in his second coming is the king protected and established by God himself. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And no one can undo his reign. Let me leave you with this quotation. The divine son who became man does a work that only he can do for us. After he was raised from the dead and he came to die, He ascended to the Father's right hand, and from this royal position, He now reigns and rules over His people and the world. We await His return from heaven as the King of kings, knowing that He will complete what He achieved in His first coming in glorious, consummated fullness. And, brothers and sisters, in anticipation of this, we join our voices with the church throughout the generations, and we pray and we cry, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.